men. Modern American cities with a substantial Jewish population have what's called an Erev. Jewish law says that you can't carry outside your home on the Sabbath day. Not a book, not keys, not even your child. But modern rabbis have come up with a workaround that expands the boundaries of Jewish homes. An Erev is a wire, sometimes it's fishing line, hung from poles at the borders of Jewish neighborhoods. In a ceremonial sense, the Erev expands the walls of each of the Jewish homes in the neighborhood, thus allowing a family to carry their child to the synagogue or a bag of groceries from the market without symbolically leaving their house. It's encompassed by the Erev. It's a self-serving technicality. A family outwardly conforms to the law while conveniently bypassing its demands. Believe it or not, an Erev surrounds the entire borough of Manhattan in New York. That wire cost $100,000 a year to maintain. Here in Atlanta, Toco Hills and Virginia Highlands and North Druid Hills are communities with an Erev. Over 200 Jewish neighborhoods in America have an Erev. And this gives us an idea of the kind of Judaism practiced by this sect of Jews known as the Pharisees. This was a legalistic group who took pride in their religious appearance and who worked at being self-righteous. The Pharisees took God's law and they created loopholes to make it convenient for their obedience. They developed ways to accommodate their own conveniences while maintaining a religious facade. And perhaps the most prominent example of this at the time of Jesus was the rabbinical ritual of hand washing. Which brings us to verse 37 here in Luke chapter 11. Verse 37 begins, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat, and when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And not only did the Jewish Pharisees, but now all the moms hearing this, and the current CDC officials, they're now in a state of shock, for Jesus didn't wash his hands for dinner. You see, these Pharisees should have owned stock in Perel hand sanitizer, for they were into hand washing, but not for hygienic purposes. Rather, they thought washing their hands made them righteous and pleasing to God. And religious Jews still practice this priority of hand washing. Today, just before the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, there's a basin where washing hands is expected before prayer. You see, the first century Pharisees, they washed their hands in a specific way and for a specific number of times. It was salvation by scrubbing, you could say. And Jesus refused to lend a hand, for he saw through the superficiality of the practice. He says, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. 
foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus was clear. So what if your hands are spick and span, if your heart is as filthy as a mechanic's greasy rags? What pleases God is not our appearance, but our attitude. God cares far more about what's on the inside of the cup than he does on the outside. Purity begins in the heart, not with the hands. In verse 41, Jesus said, But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. In other words, honor God with all your life. Give him his just due. Then you can enjoy life with a clean conscience. Whereas the Pharisees, they were compulsive in their external conformity. For Jesus warns them, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The Pharisees were meticulous. They were obsessive tithers. They would go through the spice rack, counting the poppy seeds and the nutmeg granules and the bay leaves, making sure that God got one of every ten. Man, they insisted that he received his share of the spices as if that's what God cared about. No, God's priority was love and justice and still is. So what if he gets a tenth of the cinnamon sticks If there's hate in your heart. Do you think that God cares more about spices than he does the just treatment of people? Of course not. You see, these Pharisees minored on the major issues while they majored on the minor issues. And these are not the last church folk to do so. For Christians today often act like the Pharisees of old. We become proud of our worship traditions and our religious practices. All the while, we harbor prejudice in our hearts toward people of a different race or various accent or another socioeconomic status. Do you stereotype races or mock ethnicities? Do you look down your nose at folks of a lower social standing while the God you say you serve cares about the just and loving treatment of those very same people. A few years ago, I read a tribute to Martin Luther King, written by a white man who grew up in the 1960s. Here's an excerpt. I don't know how we missed it. While King marched in Selma and an entire race cried out for justice, I heard sermons against rock and roll, the Beatles, miniskirts and long hair, but I never heard them mention racism. Injustice, intolerance, hatred, and bigotry. Those are the things God hates. Those are the things that Scripture really does speak against. They weren't the only ones who missed it. I can relate. As a child of the 60s, I attended a white church full of folks proud that they weren't like those dirty hippies. Oh, the outside of the cup was clean, but the inside was full of self-righteousness and bigotry and hatred. Like the Pharisees, they were oblivious to God's heart. And in verse 43, Jesus lowers the boom on these hypocrites. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. 
Oh, these guys, they love to feel superior in the eyes of their peers. If they only saw themselves as God saw them. He says, For woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. According to Jewish tradition, if a Jew touched a grave, even inadvertently, for a time afterward, he or she was treated as unclean or unfit for worship. And yet Jesus says the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was more defiling than dead bones. Their phony piety contaminated more people than any unmarked grave. And then verse 45, one of the lawyers... And this is not a legal expert. This was a religious scholar, a supposed expert in the law of Moses. One of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. He got it. The man's toes were aching. They too had been stepped on by the truth. You know, it's interesting, in his many sermons, Jesus never scolded the prostitutes or the tax collectors, the blatant, notorious sinners. No, he always reached out to them with an amazing sense of love and forgiveness and mercy and gentleness. No, Jesus saved his harshest words for the religious folks, for the hypocrites, who were outwardly righteous but inwardly corrupt. Apparently, the one trait God insists on is honesty. Jesus has no tolerance for pretenders. And Jesus goes right after the man who had complained. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers. Remember, he was a lawyer. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The leaders of Judaism had interpreted the law of Moses as a maze of impossible commands. A common person couldn't possibly attend to all the details. They complicated what God intended to be simple. You see, the law was simply love on display. It was an illustration of what love for God and love for one's neighbor looked like. Yet the Jews turned it into a ladder of achievement that you had to climb to prove you deserved God's love. A ladder with too many rungs to ever make it to the top. The Jews did to God's law what Detroit has done to the automobile. I read recently where the average car today has 14,000 parts. 14,000. Buy some stock in one of these auto parts places is what I say. 14,000 parts. And many of those parts require their own tool to manipulate. The complexity of the modern car has put the shade tree mechanic out of business. And of course, this is all intentional. Today, if you want your car repaired, you have to take it to the dealer. And this is why the Pharisees complicated the law. If you wanted to please God, you had to come to them. You had to play by their rules. Jesus offered the people a different path. And it was a threat to the religious authorities. And he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, and I hope you will one day, and when you walk through the Kidron Valley, which we will if you go, 
the valley between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, you'll find a series of tombs. The Jews of Jesus' day built these tombs to honor the devotion of the prophets of old. Yet ironically, their genuine piety, the piety of these Old Testament prophets, would have been pitted against the Pharisees. These hypocritical Pharisees honored the men that they would have tried to kill if they'd been alive at the time. This was another example of their hypocrisy. Jesus said, therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel, you remember Adam's son, Abel was killed by his brother Cain becoming the first martyr. The first martyr to the last martyr to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Since the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, the Jewish establishment that turned a deaf ear to Jesus would be held responsible for the witness of all the prophets who had spoken of him. And thus Jesus adds, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. Have you heard the old expression, you can't, if you can't lead and won't follow, then get out of the way. All you are is a dandy roadblock. Well, this was descriptive of the Pharisees. These supposed representatives of heaven were actually sending the people who followed them to hell. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently. You can imagine so. And to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. It gets ugly from here and over the next few months, these Jewish leaders, their hatred of Jesus will rise to a boil and erupt in an assassination plot that we'll read about later. Well, chapter 12 begins, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trampled one another. Now imagine this, an innumerable multitude of people gathering together. Some of you older folks who remember the days before COVID, do you remember how we used to gather together in big crowds? And You remember that? Long time ago? Well, obviously, that's what happened here. A huge crowd had gathered together, a mob, like a rock concert. People were on top of each other. Now remember, everyone had now heard of Jesus' miracles. And now they wanted to see him for themselves. And crowd control became a real issue. You remember the times when Jesus had told the recipients of his miracle? You remember like Jairus and his wife after Jesus raised their little girl from the dead? You remember what he told them? Don't tell anybody. And when we read it at the time, we thought, are you kidding? Mum's the word? How can that be? Don't tell anybody. Well, here was the reason. Crowd control was a real issue. John chapter 6 tells us that around this time, one out-of-control mob tried to make Jesus king against his own wishes. They were trying to forcibly put him in power. Jesus refused to be manipulated by the crowd. And through chapter 12, Jesus begins to teach this multitude, among which were his disciples, 
using a method popular among the rabbis of his day. It was called stringing beads. Oriental women would make necklaces by slipping one bead at a time onto a string. When the string was full, they'd tie it off and it would become a nice necklace. And likewise, when a rabbi randomly covered unrelated topics, they said that he was stringing beads, stringing together beads of truth. And that's what we have here. Jesus addresses his first topic. It's hypocrisy, he says. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the Greek word, hypocritus, referred to a stage performer. Greek actors performed under larger-than-life masks. The mask contained a device which augmented the volume of their voice so they could project and sound louder. Over time, though, this word hypocritus became synonymous for anyone pretending to be something that he was not. A poser, we would say. And the Pharisees were the premier posers. They had a phony faith. They pretended to love God, but what they really loved was for you to think that they loved God. This is a mask that none of us should ever wear. And for Jesus, he compares the hypocrisy of the Pharisees to leaven. You know what leaven is? It's yeast. It's what causes the bread to rise. Leaven corrupts by puffing up. And this is hypocrisy's effect. It promotes our sinful pride. It puffs us up. In verse 2, Rabbi Jesus puts another bead of truth onto this string that he's forming. He says, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Some of you may have heard my story before of appearing on the matrix board at the Braves game one night. I was with my son Nick, and I had the sniffles that particular night, and so I was trying to wipe my nose, you know, just trying to clean myself up a little bit, when suddenly... I looked up into center field, and there I was, 70 feet high, in front of 40,000 people, Pastor Sandy picking his nose. I'll never forget that day. The cameraman caught me, put me on the big screen, but realized God currently is catching every one of us every single day. And one day, Jesus says, every evil thought, every sinister deed is going to be posted on heaven's matrix board for all to see. We should know that secrets don't really exist. Everything private will one day go public. The only exception is what's forgiven under the blood of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? And I say to you, he goes on to another topic, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And for centuries, this verse has been the creed of the martyr's courage. Fear God. 
and you have no one else to fear. And it's true. It's foolish to worry about the temporary harm people might inflict when it's God who can do the permanent damage. Ever heard of hell? Well, God can write your ticket. He's the one that you should fear. And then he says in verse 6, another topic. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. This Greek word translated copper coins or asarion was the Roman equivalent of a penny. These little birds sold for less than half a cent apiece. And yet God tracks them on heaven's radar. Can you imagine? He monitors distant galaxies, but he also cares about every single sparrow. And if God cares about the birds, how much more? Does he care about you? For the very hairs of your head are all numbered, Jesus said. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, if you're blonde, and we're talking about natural colors here. But if you're blonde, you have approximately 140,000 hairs on your head. If you're brunette, that's about 125,000 hairs. And if you're a redhead, that's about 90,000 hairs. But these are just estimates. The exact number of hairs on your head varies from head to head. And as some of you uh, obviously know, uh, that can change daily. You're losing some. Yet God knows for each of us how many hairs are on our head. In fact, God is so concerned about you, he keeps a running tally of every hair. Every time you run a brush through your hair, the number changes. Yet God keeps track. And Jesus is teaching us a vital truth that God is more personally involved in our lives than any of us realize. God cares about you so much that he even knows the hairs on your head. And then also I say to you, Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You know, it takes little courage or commitment to say you follow Jesus in the sugary sweet atmosphere of church. But are you willing to confess your allegiance to Jesus in front of evil men? Here Jesus makes it clear in these verses whether you stand up for Jesus on earth before men will determine whether Jesus stands up for you in heaven before the angels. And then he says in verse 10, And whoever who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, here's one of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. It's caused great confusion in the minds of many believers. Jesus talks about the only unpardonable sin or the only unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, He will testify of me. God's Holy Spirit doesn't point people to himself. The Spirit's mission is to direct people to Jesus. Now at the time he spoke this, Jesus had been interacting with Jews who had rejected him. You remember last week, there were Jews 
who even ascribed his miracles to Satan. They had dismissed the Father's witness of the Son, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, and the voice of the Father at Jesus' baptism when he says, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. They had discounted that. And the testimony of the miracles. When Jesus exercised miracles, he was testifying of his Father's power. But they had rejected not only Jesus' testimony, but the testimony of the Father. Yet there was still hope for them. For the Spirit would be sent. The Holy Spirit would come to testify of Jesus. The Father had spoken from heaven. Jesus had come to earth. But the Holy Spirit would soon speak directly to human hearts. He would get inside their heads and by God's inner witness confirm to them the truth about Jesus. And Jesus is saying here that you can deny the Father's voice from heaven. And there's still hope. You can even deny the Son's voice on earth, and there's still hope. There's still another coming. But if you deny the inner voice of the Holy Spirit, that's God's final witness to mankind. And that is the unforgivable sin. There's nothing coming after. You deny His witness, and there's no more hope. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit's voice is a lingering and loving And longing voice. But the Holy Spirit is still God's last call. Be glad God's Holy Spirit doesn't give up so easily. John Bunyan called him the hound of heaven. He's like a bloodhound that tracks you and trees you. But if you continually reject him, the Holy Spirit leaves you. God turns you over to your unbelief. Reject the Father and the Son and there's still hope. But die saying no to the Holy Spirit and you forfeit his pardon forever. That is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then in verse six, verse 11, I'm sorry, Jesus makes a promise. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, it's hard to be prepared for all of life's contingencies. What if you were suddenly persecuted for your faith, at work perhaps, and they drug you in and wanted you to give a testimony? Would you know what to say? Well, here we're told that Jesus will be there. The Holy Spirit will give us the words. For the first disciples, this was more when, not if, But Jesus instructs them not to worry about how they'll answer their accusers. The Holy Spirit will be there to guide them and he'll be there for you in these moments to guide you. He's telling us that in the face of the unexpected, we can always trust in the Holy Spirit to give us the answers. And then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, and this is amazing, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? That's not what you'd expect Jesus to say, is it? But here he teaches us a vital lesson. Even Jesus, even God incarnate, didn't jump into a situation that was not his responsibility. 
You see, here Jesus is baited into a family squabble between two brothers. And he's asked to take sides. Whoa, been there, done that. I mean, I'm a pastor. And whether it's a husband and a wife or two friends, people always want the pastor to be on their side in an argument. Yet often, the moment you take sides, you lose the high ground. You become immersed in the squabble. And Jesus is so wise here. He avoids getting used by either side. Instead, he speaks to the deeper problem. And he said to them, Notice by not taking sides, Jesus preserves his neutrality. And he's able to speak into the lives of both the arguing brothers. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Notice Jesus stays above the fray to have a say in both brothers' lives. On the one hand, he says, don't be stingy. Hey, just share the inheritance. That's what you should do. On the other hand, he says, there's more to life than money. Split the money, not the family. Money isn't worth losing a brother. You see, since he didn't take sides, Jesus was able to speak wisdom to both sides. And then he says in verse 16, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, notice he's speaking to himself. What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will put down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. Now he could have shared. But instead, he's all about hoarding. He's going to hoard his excess. And then not only is he a hoarder, he gets haughty. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now notice this rich man. He lives in his own echo chamber. He speaks to himself. Notice he said, I will say to my soul. He's talking to himself. But God said to him, this is the wake-up call. You can talk to yourself all you want. But when God speaks, you need to pay attention. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As the old saying goes, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Reminds me of Osceola McCarty. Miss Osceola, she lived down the street from Southern Mississippi University. And she spent her 80 plus years in a one-room shack washing clothes for Hattiesburg's lawyers and doctors. In the process, Miss Osceola, she saved a little money. $260,000 to be exact. But rather than take an exotic vacation or buy a new house... She donated her nest egg to the university for scholarships for needy students. She sent her treasure on ahead. Hey, never say to yourself, soul, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Hey, you know, you can say that to your body. There's times when your body needs a rest. You need to slow down. You need to rest your body. 
But never say that to your soul. Never let your soul take it easy. You need to keep stretching your soul. You need to guard your soul. Don't let it grow sluggish. Keep pressing toward God and exercising your faith. Keep storing up treasure in heaven. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I will say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Life is more than food and fashion. And yet, isn't that what the world's preoccupied with? He says, don't get mired down in trivial material concerns and miss out on why you were created. For God, for eternity. You were created for heaven, not for the trivialities of this life. And here's a command from Jesus himself. Do not worry about your life. How many of you have kept that command this week? Do not worry about your life. That's a command. I want you to understand, worry isn't just a defect. It's not just a character flaw. Worry is a sin. Jesus has commanded us, don't worry about your life. And yet we all do. Jesus doesn't suggest we not worry. He commands us. And he gives us three reasons why. First, Worry is irreverent. Worry is a slap in God's face. He says, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. And I'm sure some ravens were flying over Jesus' head at that moment when he pointed to them. And God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? If God cares for ravens who dot the sky for just a short while, how much more does he care for his kids with whom he'll live forever in heaven? See, worry is an insult to God's faithfulness. Sure, he's going to take care of his kids. He's a good father. Worry's irreverent. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Worry is not only irreverent, it's irrelevant. It does you no good. Hey, say you're a vertically challenged person. You're a short guy. Well, you decide that you're going to worry about it. You just start worrying. You worry for hours upon hours upon hours. And then we take a measuring stick and we measure out how much it's done. Worry has changed nothing. It's, It's not added a single Fraction of an inch to your height. Worry changes nothing about our circumstances. Do you understand that? It adds nothing to our situation. It's been said worry's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. See, worry is irreverent, it's irrelevant, and it's irresponsible. For Jesus says, consider the lilies, and I'm sure he pointed to some. See how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Worry is an absolute waste of time, of effort. 
while you're worrying over matters that God promises to provide, you're allowing major issues to go unattended in your life. Worry's a waste of time. And this is why we're told, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God will supply your material needs. You need to focus on God's kingdom. Literally, His reign in your life. If you want to worry about something worthwhile, worry about the issues that concern God. Issues like the folks around you who are dying and going to hell. Or like the health of your own spiritual life. Or like the health of your church. See, here's the irony. The key to overcoming worry is worry. If you worry about the right stuff, you won't have time for the irreverent and irrelevant and irresponsible worrying. Jesus says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. See, see, here's the way to beat worry. And I doubt if you've tried this. Just sell whatever it is that you're worried about. Just sell it and you won't be a worry anymore. You know, we once had a beagle dog. It was horrible. I hated that dog. I still hate that dog. It was a beagle and we tried to keep it indoors, which was a big mistake. It barked at night. It woke up the neighbors. It jumped out of the upstairs window one day. It ate my carpet. It actually clawed a hole through the bedroom door. I hated this dog. I worried constantly about that dog until I got rid of that dog. And then I didn't worry about it anymore. This is why Jesus says, if you're worried about it, sell what you have. It'd be better off that you just sell it than sit around and worry about it all the time. Give the proceeds to God. Send those monies on to heaven. And you won't worry any longer here on earth. You don't have to worry about eternal treasures. Eternal treasures can't be lost. They can't be stolen. We need to invest in timeless, not tenuous treasures. For he says in verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice this. Your heart follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That means that what you love is what you truly value. Not what you say you value, but it's what you truly value. John Wesley used to say, When I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. We need to guard our hearts. Our love for God grows cold when the wrong stuff starts to matter too much. We need to constantly measure our treasure and evaluate it against what's eternal and what's spiritual. For Jesus says in verse 35, 
Let your, wa- let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. In other words, get ready for Jesus is coming back. And how do we prepare? Well, a man hitches up his robe and he belts it to his waist as a tie- when he gets ready for work. So he, he says, gird your waist. Let's get working. And then a woman, she lamps a lamp when it's time to watch. Let's get watching. Here's how we get ready for the Lord's return. By working and watching. Verse 36, And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve him. And if he should come in the second watch, that is a little after, a little later, uh, second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight, or come in the third watch, that's even still later, midnight to 3 a.m., and find them so, blessed are those servants. The point is, is that the servants who don't stop watching just because the master delays are the ones who receive the reward. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. A thief's success is due to the element of surprise. Thus, the best defense is to never stop watching. Years ago, a man was arrested for robbing a Santa Barbara restaurant. He handed the cashier a note that threatened to shot her. That's what the note said. He was going to shot her. He had misspelled shoot. Well, the police set up a roadblock. And everyone fitting the man's description was asked to spell the word shoot. Well, this robber was consistent. He misspelled the word again and was easily identified and apprehended. The point is twofold. Learn to spell and always be watching. This is how you stay ready for Jesus' return, by working and by watching. Verse 40 tells us, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, I make no apologies for it. I'm watching for Jesus' return. Now, I've been watching for 40 years. I'm not ashamed of that. I I thought he was going to come back in the 80s. And then in the 90s. And then in the 2000s. I've been watching for him for 40 years. I think he's going to come every day. Every day I wake up thinking this might be my last on this planet. I'm watching for Jesus. I've been called to watch. And it's those who don't stop watching, they're going to receive the reward one day. I'm going to be one of them. Are you watching? Are you ready for Jesus' return? We don't know. The Bible tells us that Jesus will come as a thief in the night. It'll be a surprise. But he's not coming without some warning signs designed to keep us on the lookout. The return of the Jews to their ancient homeland. Boy, that's a sign of the times. A rebirth of the nation Israel. The reunification of Europe, Russian hostilities toward Israel, a growing anti-Jewish sentiment around the world, an age of global travel and worldwide communication, and there's many more. Put all these prophecies together, 
And I believe we're on the threshold of the rapture of the church. I want to be ready. And I want you to be too. That's why we need to be working and watching. And then verse 41. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. So that's what gets you into a lot of trouble. Oh, I got plenty of time. You know, I'm not looking for the Lord's return. My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. It won't go well for him if he ignores or denies the Lord's coming and thinks that he has forever. Don't don't think that the Lord is delaying his coming so that you can then act like the master and seek to please yourself. That's foolish. Again, notice the end of verse 46. You'll be treated like the unbelievers. Think about those ramifications. I don't want to be treated like an unbeliever. That's not what you want, let alone beaten with many stripes. That ought to scare the stuffing out of you. And then he says in verse 48, But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. And then he gives the principle again. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And again, Jesus teaches this principle that he's taught before. Knowledge begets responsibility. See, God grades his servants on the curve. Know a lot. Have a lot of opportunity and a lot will be expected. There's a lot of responsibility. Know a little and not so much. That's why we need to live up to the opportunities that we've received. And again, I dare say, those of us here at Calvary Chapel, we've been given lots of knowledge and lots of opportunity. Thus, we carry with us a lot of responsibility. So here's what we've learned today. Jesus looks on the inside of the cup Not on the outside. Be sure that God's concerns are your priorities. Pretenders have no place in God's kingdom. Fear God and you have no one else to fear. Worry is irrelevant, irreverent, and irresponsible and a sin. You'll regret it forever if you turn a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit. And finally, be ready. For Jesus is coming soon. Father, thank you.